very good morning to our frontline family and visitors throughout all our campuses today. Greetings and love from myself and Pastor Ronell. We can't be with you in person today, but you are all in our thoughts and our prayers, and we trust today that you will experience the Lord in ways that will refresh and restore you and take you from one degree of glory to another. Church, I'm looking forward to carrying on with our series on the book of Acts, but before we get started, let's all pray together. Father God, we gather as your church this morning in the glorious name of Jesus. We ask, Lord, that as we study your life-changing word today, that you would give us fresh revelation of your truth so that we can apply it to our own lives and live out the calling that you have predestined for each of us. Lord, we humbly submit our thoughts and our ways to you today, and we ask that you would direct the intention of our hearts towards you so that we would walk in the light and in obedience to your will for our lives. It is our heart to honor you in all that we do, and so we give all of ourselves to you in this time. Lord, please anoint the words that I speak today and the ears of everyone listening. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, church, today it's good to be bringing the word to you this morning, and we will be carrying on with our series on the book of Acts. This is essentially part four of our series, but we are moving slowly through the book, verse by verse, because of the richness of the text and because of the very clear instruction it gives us when it comes to how the church should be operating. We left off last time when we started with Acts chapter 2, and where the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost in the upper room and filled the 120, and how they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This had caused major confusion for those devout Jews that came together for the Pentecost feast. And they were all amazed at how these Galileans were speaking in their own dialect. They were speaking approximately 16 different languages because these were Jews that had traveled to Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. They were amazed and perplexed at what was taking place but there were still some that mockingly said that they are just full of new wine, that these people must just be drunk. So what happens is Peter stands up and to set things straight, he preaches the first sermon that results in the birth of the church. He preaches a very powerful sermon. And remember church, this is the same Peter that denied Jesus three times. The very same Peter who is now fulfilling what Jesus said. Because Jesus said to Peter in Luke chapter 22, Indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus promised that Peter would fail because he's been attacked, but that he would also be restored. And we see how Jesus restores him in John chapter 21 after the resurrection. And where he said to Peter repeatedly, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter kept on replying, yes, Lord, I love you. He said, feed my sheep. He commissioned Peter again. And church, in my preparation this week, when I just thought about how miraculously Peter was restored, I felt the Lord saying to me, 
that there will be people listening to this message today and you're going through a very difficult time in your life right now. You're going through some rough stuff, maybe even to the point of wanting to deny Jesus. You've been pushing and trying and, and hoping for breakthrough for months and perhaps even years now. And it just feels like the enemy's attacks are relentless and it, nothing is breaking and there's nothing to hold on to anymore. And I believe that the Lord is saying that even though Satan may be sifting you, even though you may be going through something unbearable, he's praying for you and you will not be overcome completely. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The fires and the flames will not consume you. And when you come through the fire and you return to him, he's going to restore you to the point where you will be able to strengthen others. I really feel strongly in my spirit that the Lord is refining many of us so that we can become conquerors for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you today, despite what you're going through, don't give up. Don't give up on your faith. The book of Numbers chapter 23 says that God is not a man that he should lie. He is not a human, so he does not change his mind. He has he ever spoken and failed to act, to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? I want to encourage you this morning. Don't give up on God because he will never give up on you. And if he has begun something in your life, he will complete it. Because church, as we'll see in scripture today, is an example of a man that was restored to live a resurrected life and he made a massive impact in the kingdom of God. A man that was sifted, but that was restored with power. He was restored with Holy Ghost power. And I believe that there are people under my voice today that are going through a sifting process. You're going through something. But if you allow that process to refine you and purify you, and you don't allow that process to harden your heart, you will be restored. And you will live a powerful Christian life for the sake of Jesus Christ, and you will be able to strengthen others. Your healing and restoration will bring healing and restoration to others. And you will have the boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. And if you don't go through it, you won't have the courage to stand up and do it. So today, let's look at how Peter stands up and boldly proclaims the name of Jesus and begins to strengthen others and bring them to the knowledge of who Jesus is. Last time we saw how Peter started his sermon and explained to the people that what was happening on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, was actually what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. This is not us being intoxicated with wine, he said. This is us being filled with the Holy Spirit, which was prophesied in the Old Testament. And let's go together to Acts chapter number 2 to see what Peter says next. If you have your Bibles, let's read together from verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and for knowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed 
the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, church, New Testament preaching in the book of Acts contained two main elements. Number one, a proclamation of the gospel, and number two, an exhortation to repent. There was always the gospel which included the death, the burial and resurrection of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ, which Peter immediately begins with, and then there's an appeal to repent and be baptized. So very importantly, Peter's not just going to give information, he's going to call for transformation. And you'll see that this is a template right throughout the book of Acts. Because what's the point if you receive all this information, but it doesn't bring you to a point of transformation? So as we read in verse 22, Peter is speaking to a Jewish audience, and he hits right at the heart of the matter. He wants the Jewish audience to know that Jesus is the Messiah. And he gives some very compelling proofs to back up what he's saying. Proof number one is Jesus' signs, his wonders, his miracles, and his works. That's the first proof. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, which you yourselves also know. In other words, what he's saying is you might try and talk about it. You might try and argue about it and say that they're drunk with wine and just dismiss it. But you know better because you saw it happen. It happened in front of you in this town. So the proof is in the pudding. In this case, the proof is in the miracles. Jesus himself said that John the Baptist bears testimony of who I am. But I have a greater witness than John. The works that I do bear witness of me. He also said in John chapter 14, just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you don't want to believe that, at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. So without a shadow of a doubt, they knew that his miracles attested to who he was. Proof number two and three is where Peter says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and for knowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. That's the second proof. They crucified Jesus and they put him to death. But then he says, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he could be held by it. Peter now points out to them that Jesus not only performed all these signs and wonders and then died, but in fact, God raised him from the dead. And this was a critical point to make because as they're listening to Peter, they're thinking, right, he's a miracle worker, right? He performed all these miracles, but he's dead. He's not alive anymore. He was a miracle worker, but where is your miracle worker now? So Peter, knowing their thinking and their hearts, tells them, but God raised him to life. And church, the resurrection now becomes the focal point of preaching in the New Testament, and it's what defines us as Christians. This was a pivotal point in his sermon. Peter expounds on his proof by referring to Psalm chapter 16, where he says in verse 25, For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. 
for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So he hits it with an Old Testament scripture, and then he says in verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, you didn't know David was a prophet, did you? You always thought he was a psalmist. But it says, therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseen this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. The 120 plus the rest of them that saw him after the resurrection. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Church Peter is really building on his proof here, and he shows them that even the, the great King David prophesied of Jesus' resurrection. And on top of that, there were hundreds of witnesses that saw him after he rose from the dead. But if that's not enough, he ascended into heaven. We saw it. And he sent us the Holy Spirit, the expression of what you, which you now see and hear. He circles all the way back to what's happening on the day of Pentecost. And let me tell you something, church, this is excellent preaching. Because what Peter is doing is, is a classic example of expository gospel preaching, carefully reasoned and carefully progressing in its argument. And the inescapable conclusion is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And the more he continues, the more they start to realize the significance of what just happened and the part that they played in handing Jesus over. But Peter doesn't stop there. He quotes another psalm from David to prove Jesus is the Messiah by his ascension. Verse 34 says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make my enemies your footstool. He's referring to Psalm 110. And church, even though David wrote the psalm, he wrote it in the first person as the very words that Christ would speak. The Jews may have thought at some point that this was talking about David and, and that somehow he was going to escape death. But no one ever claimed that David rose from the dead. So Peter wants him to clearly understand that this can't be about David. He's not the one who ascended into the heavens. He's not the one that's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, here's the conclusion of Peter's message. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, church, very importantly, he doesn't blame the Romans here. He doesn't blame the ones that beat Jesus, 
tortured him and crucified him. He's speaking to the Jewish audience and he says, you did it. The Sanhedrin rejected him as a blasphemer. They condemned him to death. But you joined in. You screamed for his blood. You crucified him. You killed the one that God had exalted. You've dipped your hands in the blood of the very one that the prophets had looked for. And he made sure that they got the message. He made sure that they understood it. And you can just imagine by now the impact of what they've just heard. Which leads us to verse 37. And it says this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Church, that word cut, other translations say pierced, is only used here in all the New Testament writings. And the power of Peter's argument didn't just result in them shedding some tears because it was a touching message. It wasn't some kind of clever illustration or some insight that he brought. It was the overwhelming power of the evidence from testimony and scripture and the power of a systematic argument together with the conviction of the Holy Spirit that left them stabbed to the heart. They were stabbed. They now realize the terrible thing that they've done. The horror of which deepens when they begin to realize their, their great sense of guilt. They are now guilty before God of the most horrific crime in history. And fear sets in because of the divine wrath of God that awaits them. They now have an understanding of the evil of their deeds. And they cry out. They cry out to Peter and the other apostles, and they say to their men and brethren, what must we do? What do we need to do to be saved? And church, this type of preaching, this is the type of preaching that turns people's lives around because it doesn't leave them wondering. This type of preaching makes you make a decision to follow Jesus or to turn your back onto Jesus, right? Unfortunately, there's a lot of preaching out there today that still leaves people wondering. And to mollycoddle sinners, to try and make them feel good, is preaching that is absent of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Effective gospel preaching must not only tell the sinner of his sin, it must prove to the sinner his sin. And we're all sinners listening to this message today. Conviction is the first work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And this preaching led to such a deep conviction that they were cut to the heart and they cried out, what must we do? What do we need to do to be saved? And church, this just blows my mind. Because at this point, the first expression of amazing grace appears in gospel preaching. Verse 38 says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is that not just amazing grace right there? I mean, how fast did they go from this massive over overwhelming trauma and terror, this indictment and guilt, to this compassionate, merciful word of grace. This inexplicable grace that is shown here is just overwhelming. And you may think at some point in your life, you know what, well, I'm a pretty bad sinner. 
I don't know if the Lord could ever forgive me. Well, I don't think you're any worse than this group. I don't know what you've done to other people, but you didn't kill the Son of God. You didn't murder the Messiah. They did. And grace is extended instantaneously to them. At church, complete forgiveness. Not partial forgiveness. Complete forgiveness if they will repent for their crimes against God and they will embrace Jesus, confess Him as Lord, and be identified with Him in His death and resurrection in baptism, complete forgiveness will be theirs. They will receive forgiveness, and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, who will come and dwell in their lives as He did those believers on the same day of Pentecost. Remember, Peter's goal is not to just dispense information here, Getting them to transformation is his goal. He wants change to occur. He calls a choice to be made. Repent and be baptized. And the order is important, right? It's not, he didn't say be baptized and then repent. It's repentance first and then baptism because baptism, baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. We spoke in depth about this last week. Faith is what unites us to Christ, and baptism is a symbol of the covenant. Repentance, turning around, changing your mind, and demonstrating that by baptism is a symbol of your faith. And you know, church, if you turn to God, if you repent, if you receive Him as Lord, if you are baptized in His name, all His promises that are yes and amen become your portion. Because look at what it says in verse 39. It says, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And I just love that verse because what it means is that if you call on the Lord today, even though it is 2,021 years later, that grace is also for you and for me and for your children and for my children and for all who are afar off in generations to come. As you call on the Lord, that same empowering is available to you today. And I just love that because everything that was promised over 2,000 years ago to unbelievers, to believers, to the church, still applies to us today. And that's why, church, when you read the Bible, it's like it was written specifically for you and what you have to go through in your life for the exact season that you find yourself in. That's why it's called the living and breathing Word of God, because it carries the same life and same power it did when it was first written. I've got two more verses for you this morning. Verse 40 says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day... About 3,000 souls were added to them. In church, all you can say to that is, wow. Wow. 3,000 who had been stabbed to the heart for having murdered the Messiah, who felt the burden of their crime so profoundly that they were fearing the vengeance of God would fall on them. They cried out, what shall we do? Knowing really that they couldn't undo anything. But then they hear the staggering word from Peter. Repent. Repent. Be baptized, receive forgiveness, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit from the one that you executed, from the one that rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He will give you the same spirit he has given to us. And because of this amazing grace, they go from condemned to approved to saved to loved in an instant. And you just have to take a step back and, and just marvel at God's redemptive plan. You have to take another step back and just absorb for a few moments that this amazing grace has been extended to you and to me. At church, even though we weren't the ones who actually sent Jesus to the cross, he died for our sins as well. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He died for everyone who would call on his name. And when you think about this church, the truth is Jesus didn't just die so that you'd be saved. He died so that you would truly live on this earth. I mean, if Jesus only wanted us to be saved, then as soon as we're saved, we would drop down dead immediately and go to heaven, right? He died so that you would truly live. And just like Jesus was fully restored by his father, death couldn't hold him. Just like Peter was restored by Jesus, his denying couldn't condemn him. He wants to restore you. He wants to restore you so that you go beyond just being saved and become a, a symbol of the resurrected life and a pillar of strength. You know, I'm sure that when Peter had denied Jesus for the, th the third time, and when he ran away and he wept so bitterly, at that moment, I doubt that he ever thought he would ever do anything again for the kingdom of God. And maybe there are some of you listening today, and because of what you've done, and because of what you've said, you seriously doubt that God will ever use you again. Maybe you've headed in the wrong direction, in the opposite direction to the cross, and God is sifting you. And you just don't see any light at the end, the end of the tunnel anymore. Some of you are being bombarded right now by the devil's lies, and that's the only voice that you can hear. And you feel like you are fighting a losing battle. I want to say to you this morning that you and I serve a restoring God. We serve a saving God, and we serve a restoring God. And did you know that God is not mad at you when you fall? Remember, he's not your judge right now. He's your savior. One day he will be your judge, but right now he is your savior. And I really feel in my spirit that he wants to restore those of you that are feeling today that you will never make it. And you're at a place where you just want to give up. And I believe the Lord is saying to you today, don't give up. Don't give up on your faith because he has a plan for your life and it will be completed. And I want to encourage you today. When the facilitators lead you in prayer to run to the altar and lay your burdens at the feet of Jesus because he is a restorer of broken hearts. He's a restorer of broken lives, broken marriages, broken dreams, and broken hope. Our responsibility is to come to God with open hearts and repentant hearts. And if we do that, 
There is nothing that God cannot restore in the life of a believer. You see, church, the devil's aim is to identify your brokenness and move in immediately as the accuser, and he will throw every lie to you to try and steal your destiny. He will do everything within his power to come against you and lie to you and say to you that you of all people should be expected to be used by God. You failed. Just look at what you did. He's going to say that you're a fake Christian. He will throw everything that he possibly can at you because the Bible says that he is the accuser of the brethren. And maybe you've started believing those lies. I want to say to you again this morning, you and I serve a restoring God. And if we allow our hearts, if our hearts are willing to be broken and be purified and molded by God, even if that means we have to go through some pain and some suffering, over time that heart will become immune to the attempts of the enemy. And God will only allow that to happen to you because he knows that when you are restored and you return to him, you will operate in Holy Ghost power and you will boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And I don't know who this is for today. Maybe this is just for a handful of you. Maybe this is for many of you. But the resurrected Christ is saying to you today, my son, my daughter, no matter how many times you've denied me, no matter how far you've run in the opposite direction, no matter how hard life has tried to keep you down and beat you down, I'm going to restore you for good works. The Lord is saying to you this morning, don't give up, because I will never give up on you. And church, I want to say to you this morning that His grace is sufficient. It's sufficient for what you're going through. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace that saves, and thank you for your grace that restores. Church, let's all stand together and sing this song.